0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: How do you feel great on vacation? Like, really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at Aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com
0: to try it free. Rated PG 13. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the after party. It is the party where we gather you all together, we pour some coal black mead, I don't know why it's black, but I'm just going with it, into our giant cauldron, our giant silver cauldron, we scoop it out with drinking horns made from the finest aurochs horn that are now extinct, because we're in the time of legends, and we pass it around and we tell you all the stories that did not make it into our longer episodes. I'm a little sad for the aurochs. The people of Cyrene printed it on their money. It was considered a delicacy throughout the Greek and Roman world, as well as a powerful medicine that could be used to cure everything from baldness to epilepsy to poisonings. And poison stabbings, if someone stabbed you with a knife that had poison on it, this was the plant to go to. Both the Egyptians and the Minoans of Knossos had their own glyph to represent this plant. Pliny the Elder called it one of the most precious gifts of nature to man.
1: According to Pliny, when Julius Caesar's civil war began and he raided the treasury to go fight Pompey, telling the treasurer who tried to stop him, I can kill you faster than I can threaten you, because he would say that.
0: He totally fucked it up. I can kill you faster than I can threaten to kill you.
1: I can kill you faster than I can threaten to kill you.
0: Try to sound a little bit cold and heartless like you might actually stab me.
1: I can kill you faster than I can threaten to kill you.
0: I've heard you talk to me like that before when I'm getting mad at you about deadlines. I mean,
1: and the reality is I probably could kill you faster than I could
0: threaten to kill you. Yeah. (laughs) I was also having that thought. I'm like, is this not from one of our conversations about deadlines? Right. So what Julius Caesar took in addition
1: to loads of gold and silver was 1,500 pounds of dried sap from the roots of this plant.
0: That plant, this storied plant, was sylphium. The ancient Romans loved it. They loved it to extinction. No sylphium has been seen since Nero's time, and nobody knows what kind of plant it actually was. Today, we're going to tell you the story of sylphium. Sylphium was said to be native to Cyrene, an ancient Greek city-state in North Africa in what today is northeastern Libya. According to Pliny the Elder, seven years before the founding of Cyrene, this would have been, I guess, around 368 BC, a great and unusual rainstorm swept through, showering the region with coal-black rain. The black rain fell across 4,000 stadia of land, which is, I guess, around 55 acres, I think? I'm guessing. All the land touched by the black rain started to produce a most incredible plant, sylphium. The Cyrenians
1: settled their city not long after that, and when they did, they found this incredible plant growing on the hills outside the walls. It soon became their biggest export, mainly to Rome, Greece, and Egypt. They got rich off sylphium. They even printed it on their coins. So what did sylphium look like? Cyrenian coins show a plant kind of like fennel with a thick, tall stalk and sprays of tiny flowers clumped together, kind of like Queen Anne's lace. Some historians think sylphium actually was a species of fennel, although not everyone agrees on this. You know, the jury's still out.
0: The impression I get here was that this was not a small, neat, cute little plant. It was big. It was unruly. It had this big, large, bulbous root stalk that could reach a cubit in length down beneath the ground.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, think about, like, thyrsuses, you know? Like, that's what I'm thinking here.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like that, actually. I've seen pictures of thyrsuses. It had this real thick stalk. The roots had black bark on them. It grew really tall, like a fennel giant, according to Pliny. He called it a fennel giant. And it had leaves like parsley that shed every year. And this is how Pliny describes it, very poetically the leaves of silphium shed every year at the rise of the dog star and the season of southerly winds. It had flowers which might have been like fennel flowers, I guess like kind of, you know, like the Queen Anne's Lace, like clusters of small flowers. But nobody remembers what these flowers looked like. Nobody has seen these flowers in 2000 years. I'm not 100% sure what color they were. I'm guessing yellow. I could be wrong. You could juice silphium in two different ways, from the stalk or the root. The juice from the root was the good stuff. It was white and milky, and the Romans called it laser or lacerpicium. And this stuff was worth about as much pound for pound as silver. But the other parts of the plant, the stalks and the roots, also had their uses. So let's get into just what silphium was good for.
1: Almost every part of the plant could be eaten. People boiled, roasted, and sautéed the stalks. They ate the roots fresh or dried, and they dried the laser, the sap from the roots, and grated it over dishes in ancient Rome the way we grate parmesan over pasta today. It was considered a culinary delicacy. Its flowers were made into an outstanding base for perfumes. The ancient Romans thought sylphium was absolutely delicious. It appears as an ingredient in many ancient Roman recipes. The ancient Greeks loved it too. Aristophanes sure did. Here's a quote from him after visiting Cyrene, where sylphium was grown and produced. He lived from 408 to 344 BC, and here's the quote. quote, I will not sail back to the place from which we were carried away, for I want to say goodbye to all horses, silphium, chariots, silphium stalks, steeplechasers, silphium leaves, fevers, and silphium juice.
0: Spam, 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 baked beans, spam, spam. It's like that, but silphium.
1: And more silphium.
0: There's a scene in Aristophanes' The Birds where a man is cooking in his kitchen, and who should appear to demand his attention? the gods, which you would think would be a big giant deal. But without even looking up from what he was doing, the man said, not now, guys, I'm grating sylphium.
1: And they were like, oh, sorry. Yes, that's very important. Do not leave it out of your offerings to us.
0: People ate the stalks as well as the roots of sylphium. The stalks could be cooked like a vegetable, boiled, sautéed, or roasted. And if you waited until its leaves fell, the stalks could be used in a kind of extreme intense cleanse. And this is a quote from Pliny, quote, after the fall of the leaf, the people themselves were in the habit of eating the stalk, either roasted or boiled. From the drastic effects of this diet, the body was purged for the first 40 days, all vicious humors being effectually removed.
1: Dreaming of a better sleep? this brings us to the medical uses of sylphium.
0: It was the laser that was used in most medical applications. This was the dried root. They dried the root and I think made it mostly into a powder. And then from the powder form, they could do all kinds of things to it. They could mix it in wine. They could make it into a pill. Pliny the Elder says it was, quote, a menagogue, a hydrogog, a vermifuge, and a purgative. And more on all that in a minute, what those are, he lists no less than 39 medical superpowers that this ingredient had. And some of those include frostbite, I'm assuming, numb with cold, affections of the sinews, we're not sure what that means, corns on your feet, scorpion stings
1: and snake bites,
0: cuts from poisoned weapons,
1: dog bites,
0: ulcers, excrescences of the fundament. <laughs> it sounds like it has something to do with your butt,
1: something you got from poop, <laughs> carbuncles. Baldness. Apparently, you mix sylphium with mouse dung and vinegar, and you've got a cure for baldness.
0: Chilblains.
1: Cough, irritated uvula, and hoarseness. It instantly clears the throat and revives the voice. Where was it when we were doing our Aphrodite episode where I sounded so chesty LaRue? Jaundice. It's good for jaundice. Dropsy. Gout. Pleurisy and quinsy. Epilepsy. Consumptive affections of the viscera.
0: Not sure what that is, but it sounds painful sciatica it's a
1: diuretic
0: it's a laxative it kills parasites it never makes you fart no matter how much of it you take
1: oh that's such a lie (laughs) it promotes digestion but never farts both in aged people and females females (laughs) i just love that (laughs) you know aged people and females just you know
0: and females (laughs) fumigations of silphium like i guess you boil it and make a steam of it or believed to heal growths on the anus. Hippocrates tells us that, quote, when the gut protrudes and will not remain in its place, scrape the finest and most compact silphium into small pieces and apply as a poultice, so it's useful when your guts are falling out. The laser, the powdered uh, root, would be mixed with ingredients such as honey, wine, or water, coated with wax to make a pill, Boiled or packed into a poultice, depending on the ailment, there were all kinds of ways you could apply it, take it, and combine it with other ingredients.
1: One thing you could never, ever do, however, was use it to treat a toothache. Pliny tells us that this one time, a guy inserted a wax-coated pill of silphium into a hollow tooth to treat his toothache, and then hurled himself from the roof of his house.
0: So let's talk about sylvium's effect on animals because this was also a thing.
1: Sylvium grew wild, and the Serenians observed what happened when their animals grazed on it. Pliny said that if you fed it to cattle, at first they would purge. If some of the cattle were sick, they would either die immediately or be cured of all their distempers. The cattle that survived would grow fat on it, and when you slaughtered them, their meat would be mm, oh so tasty.
0: He also said that if you rub laser on a bull's muzzle, it would make him extremely irritated. Do not try this at home. It is not safe to irritate any bulls. Here's my favorite one. Quote, if it's mixed with wine, it will cause serpents to burst. Those reptiles being extremely fond of wine. Interesting.
1: I didn't know snakes liked wine, but that is an interesting thing to know.
0: I didn't know snakes were into wine,
1: and also this will make them burst. Yeah, but can you imagine if you were like, um, if you had like a vineyard or even just a stock room and you constantly had serpents getting in there, if you just put some of the silphium around the edge, they would eat it and then they wouldn't be able to have your wine.
0: I think they have to put it in the wine because the serpents like the wine.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm thinking they would drink it and then they would also somehow ingest the...
0: I can't attest to how this works, but that is the little tidbit that we get from Pliny. (laughs) So all of these medical and culinary uses did make silphium extremely useful and desirable, but these uses paled in importance compared to silphium's effectiveness as a contraceptive and an abortive. So the Serenians... Clearly thought that this was the main cell of their biggest export, and so did everyone else, but nobody talked about it. It was all very hush hush. Some of the Cyrenian coins are quite open about this, however. I've seen coins that show a Sylphium stalk on one side, and on the other side, a seated woman sitting in front of a Sylphium stalk, pointing at her vag. That's a real big hint about what you use this for.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So the ancient Greek physician, Sorinus, called Sylphium Cyrenaic juice, and according to him You can take it regularly to prevent pregnancy, or you could take a single dose of it after sex, kind of like a morning after pill, to stimulate menstruation. Most writers describe taking it mixed in wine, sometimes with other herbs and spices as well. Although Jenny came across one reference that said you can take it as a chickpea-sized pill as well. And Pliny says you douse a piece of soft wool in silphium and then you put it up your vagina like a tampon.
0: You put it in your vag, you guys. Right up there. So apparently, taking
1: regular doses of silphium would both reduce your chances of getting pregnant and if you were already pregnant, it could cause an abortion.
0: So the picture on this is a bit confusing and it's actually really interesting because if you look at a lot of the women, I mean, Agrippina the Elder is an obvious exception to this, but elite women in ancient Rome, a lot of the time, they only have like one or two children and I've seen historians wonder about this. Like, was it just because their menfolk were at war all the time? Was it like all the lead in the water? You know, why aren't these women having more children and one of the reasons may be
1: I mean the Julian Claudians were all inbred all of them they were marrying their uncles
0: well that could be one reason they weren't having sex cuz who wants to fuck your uncle
1: but not only that they were marrying their uncles and their brothers and their uncle was also like twice their uncle on three different sides five times removed like these were all like family circles family trees that were all circles like
0: so it could be miscarriages because of fetal abnormalities because of incest possibly but yeah, one of the reasons may be the birth control was actually more reliable than we realize. And it's just that the plans that people use, like those weren't written down a lot by male physicians. So we don't get that wisdom today. And you can kind of see it in how these physicians, these male physicians talk about silphium because they use a lot of euphemisms. And some of that might be these physicians talking about it this way. And some of it might be 18th century gentleman scholar writers who have Victorian sensibilities. So... The picture is a bit confusing, and it's probably confusing because of the euphemisms people used. In the ancient world, as well as the world of 18th century gentleman scholars who did quite a few of these translations, men were kind of squeamish about talking about abortion. Physicians from the ancient world, like Soranus and Dioscurides and even Pliny, described silphium as, quote, stimulating the menstrual flow. I mean, that's how it's translated in English anyway. Possible the translator was being delicate about it, And I use a lot of free translations you can get at places like Lassius Curtis, which tend to be older translations, which is what makes me wonder if it's the ancient writers or the translators being squeamish or both.
1: Anyway, we've seen some modern writers take this absolutely literally. You take the medicine, your period starts immediately, and then you can't get pregnant. And that's how it worked as a contraception, which is wrong. You can get pregnant on your period. You absolutely can. It is possible. But... That part about stimulating the menstrual flow is actually about abortion. Either this was a euphemism for stimulating a miscarriage, which can seem like a period, or it was a euphemism for stopping pregnancy in general. Your period stops when you get pregnant. So, of course, ending the pregnancy restores menstruation. It's
0: kind of like a sideways way of talking about it, you know? So, would sex workers in ancient Greece have used sylphium? Possibly. The time frame is right on. However, sylphium would probably have been expensive. Ancient writers say that laser was worth as much pound for pound as silver, and sometimes gold, depending on the time period. So I kind of doubt that sex workers at the lower end of the market, or, you know, the lower end of the social strata, could afford it. But maybe the, you know, the elite courtesans could.
1: Oh yeah, the hetira definitely could. And to be honest with you, if you have a very short window of time to make your money, then this would be maybe a necessity. Absolutely. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything, yet. Together we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation, we hope, but that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
0: Hello, everyone. It's here.
1: And I'm Gabby.
0: And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
1: Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the Lost Colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de my friends. Bye-bye.
0: I'll be seeing you. So, sylphium was also supposedly an aphrodisiac, although I haven't found much in the ancient sources about how it worked as an aphrodisiac. But it was just strongly, strongly associated with sex in the ancient world. But sylphium didn't have to also be an aphrodisiac in order to gain its strong association with sex. Being a contraceptive and an abortifacent for women was enough. Because sylphium was strongly associated with sex in the ancient world, as I've said like six times. In fact, its seeds were heart-shaped, and some historians believe that that's why the heart shape came to be associated with love. Because if you think about it, a human heart is not heart-shaped.
1: Yeah, so these seeds, which actually were what we think of today as heart-shaped. Interesting. In fact, there's an ancient Greek myth that underlines the connection between silphium and love. It involves the twins Castor and Pollux, collectively known as the Dioscuri or the Gemini. They were twins, but also half-brothers. Their mom was Leda, and Castor was the son of the mortal king of Sparta, whereas Pollux was the son of Zeus in swamp form because... Zeus liked to change into whatever he could, whenever he wanted to, to rape whoever he wanted to. Because Zeus is the worst. Some myths say that the children hatched from an egg. Anyway, Castor and Pollux did everything together. They loved to travel around and have adventures, and they were the gods of sailors, horseback riders, and horse racing. Sometimes they lived among mortals, and sometimes they lived among the gods. It was the life.
0: Castor and Pollux had this house at Lacadamon, I guess that's a town in Sparta, where they lived among mortals. Time passed and the twins moved on. They didn't like staying in one place too long, so it was sold to a local Spartan guy named Formion. And one day, the twins showed up at his doorstep. It's kind of like that thing you do, you know, when you visit an old house where you used to live, and you're like, hey, I used to live here, and maybe if the person's nice, they're like, hey, come on in and look at my house. Although that is kind of weird. It's
1: super weird and intrusive.
0: This is even more intrusive than that, though, because Castor and Pollux didn't want to just get a tour and see how the new place had been redecorated. They asked if they could crash there for the night, seeing as this used to be their house and all, and not only that, but they wanted to stay in their favorite bedroom. Formion was very gracious about this, considering that they were gods and everything. I guess he didn't have much choice. And he said, yeah, sure, come on in. You guys can have my futon, but you can't have that bedroom because it's my daughter's bedroom. So night fell,
1: and everyone went to sleep for the night. When Formion awoke, he found his house deserted. The twins were gone. And when he went to his daughter's bedroom, she was gone too. She disappeared along with all her clothes. The only things left in the room were images of the Dioscuri, a table, and sylphium upon it. So make of that what you will, guys.
0: I mean, I assume that she just had this wild night with these twins, and then she peaced out with them.
1: She was like, hey, I'm just going to piece off with these guys. Uh, Cool. She left her birth
0: control behind, though. That's a problem.
1: She might have left, like, the sylphium that's, like, worth money as a spice, but kept the other sylphium that's good as birth control.
0: So maybe she kept the laser part. That's what I'm thinking. So what happened to sylphium? The Cyrenians
1: spent centuries exporting sylphium to different parts of the Mediterranean world, and they got rich doing it. Their silphium heyday lasted from the 600s to the 100s BC. By around 100 BC, though, silphium was completely extinct. In fact, this is believed to be the first recorded extinction of a species. So let's talk about why this happened.
0: Silphium only grew naturally in a very limited area, a strip of land along the North African coastline, which was about 25 miles long and 35 miles wide. And that's the only place it grew. According to Pliny, it was impossible to cultivate sylphium. It would only grow wild, and only on that one patch of acreage in Cyrene. Pliny said that, quote, it is in general wild and stubborn, and, which it attempted to be cultivated, will leave the spot where it has been sown quite desolate and barren. Modern writers have suggested that the reason sylphium didn't grow anywhere else was because it was a hybrid, the result of cross-pollination of two different but closely related species of plants. Some hybrids are sterile and can't be grown from their own seeds. They basically reproduce through their roots, which explains why people couldn't grow silphium using their seeds. From what I understand as a non-botanist trying to understand this, this is what I've worked out, some hybrid plants reproduce from what is called root stock. So there's a network of interconnected roots underground, and the new plants sprout from that and that alone. The reproducing body is the root, and it's interconnected for miles and miles underground. There are some types of trees that work this way. They're basically genetic clones of the parent plant. And remember, sylphium was said to have a massive root structure, so this does kind of track.
1: Yeah. So this might be why the ancient Greek botanist Theophrastus, the father of botany, wrote with such frustration about trying and failing to grow sylphium from seeds. Sylphium was the one plant he couldn't grow. And this isn't the only explanation, of course, for Silphium's refusal to be cultivated. The plant could have been very sensitive to soil chemistry, or changes in the weather or temperature, or any number of other factors. Pliny wrote that the Cyrenians grazed their sheep on the same fields where Silphium grew naturally, and that the land was overgrazed, killing the Silphium. This doesn't make sense to some modern historians who don't believe the Serenians would be dumb enough to let sheep eat all their money crop. I mean, they just wouldn't. Also, if sylphium really was a hybrid, grazing on the leaves wouldn't kill the underlying root structure, so sylphium would continue to grow.
0: I mean, in theory. Other theories include climate change, the region was slowly drying over the centuries, but it's quite possible that the reason could be laid at the feet of the ancient Roman, Greek, and Egyptian consumers. Overharvesting may have killed silphium. Ancient writers say that by the 100s BC, nobody had seen a living silphium plant. The loss of their main cash crop was disastrous to the Cyrenian economy. As silphium gradually disappeared from the world, people got desperate. It's said people tried growing it in their gardens to no avail. The ancient Romans were stockpiling amphoras of dried laser by Julius Caesar's day. Caesar's civil war happened from 49 to 45 BC, so by his time, no sylphium would have been seen growing for more than 50 years, maybe as much as a century. That stockpiled laser in the Roman treasury must have been vastly more valuable than the silver and gold that Julius Caesar took.
1: Knockoffs started appearing on the market. One was Asafetida, a plant that grew in Parthia. It was an inferior variety and cut with cheaper ingredients. Again, this is according to Pliny. For this long time past, there has been no laser imported into this country, but that produced either in Persis, Medea, or Armenia, where it grows in considerable abundance, though much inferior to that of Cyrenaica. And even then, it is extensively adulterated with gum, sacopenium, or pounded beans. Pounded beans? Asafetida, by the way, is still around today. It's a member of the ferula species, which is a type of celery. Historians don't know if it's actually related to silphium, but it may have been. And like sylphium, it does have contraceptive and possibly abortive properties. In rats, it functions kind of like a morning-after pill, preventing a zygote from implanting for as many as three days after sex.
0: So theoretically, you could take it three days after sex and stop a pregnancy.
1: If you're a rat.
0: Right. It's like morning-after pill for rats. It doesn't work on humans in the same way. It works on rats. Well, I can't confirm or deny if it works on humans in the same way, but I wouldn't suggest relying on that alone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, please don't rely on that as your birth control.
0: (laughs) By Nero's reign around 54 AD, sylphium had functionally ceased to exist. In fact, that year, someone found a sylphium plant growing wild along the coastline outside Cyrene, picked it, and sent it as a gift to Nero. A curiosity. From what I hear, he ate it, asshole. Wouldn't you? It's been picked. There's nothing else you can do now. I might try to use it as plan B. I don't know.
1: We don't know what part of it he ate, and we also don't know what part they sent to him.
0: We don't know a lot of things about sylphium. That's the takeaway. And that's the story of sylphium. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for your support. Thank you. We'll see you probably later this week or next
1: week.